Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is in partnership with the Koran Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our final podcast on Sefer Shemuel, the Book of Samuel. For those of you that have been with us throughout our studies, congratulations on a tremendous accomplishment. Sefer Shemuel is, of course, one of the longest books in the Hebrew Bible, and certainly in, tor- in terms of the characters and the themes that we encounter, it is one of the richest and most nuanced as well. I'm going to quickly run through some of what we saw in order to give us an overview of the contents. As you recall, our story began with an image of the tabernacle, the Mishkan at Shiloh, the spiritual center of the people of Israel, presided over by the corrupt priests, Chofni and Pinchas, and their ineffectual father, Eli. And this, of course, introduced us to one of the first lessons in the book, namely that a priesthood, a religious leadership, that is corrupt and that abuses the people is, of course, one that must be swept away. And Chofni and Pinchas, unfortunately, use their power in order to take advantage of the people of Israel, both vis-a-vis the sacrificial service and even serious sexual crimes. And their leadership, of course, stood in glaring contrast to the character of Hannah, a pious, blameless, sincere woman who utters an incredible prayer that changes her destiny. And even as the priests at Shiloh are distant from God and a connection with Him, it is the simple and straightforward prayer of Hannah which reaches, as it were, the throne of glory. And she is blessed with a child. That child is Shimuel, Samuel, who grows up in the shadow of Chofni and Pinchas, but at the same time under the careful tutelage of Eli, the high priest. And Shimuel is a pious individual, naturally attracted to his relationship with God and fully devoted to the process of spiritual growth. Shimuel grows up in Shiloh, and soon enough Shiloh is destroyed by a Philistine attack. The Ark of the Covenant is taken hostage in the conflict, in the battle, and that introduces us to another major theme, which is that we must never put our trust in objects in place of moral development. The Ark of the Covenant cannot save the people of Israel from defeat on the battlefield. The only thing that can save them is their renewed commitment to behave morally, to behave sincerely, and to be authentic. And so the Ark is taken captive. Eventually, it will be returned. The Philistines will be forced to acknowledge the power of the God of Israel even as the God of Israel acts covertly and subtly to undermine them 
thus introducing us to another important idea, which is that God's involvement in human lives is muted and understated, but absolutely part and parcel of the process, and the most important part at that. Shmuel emerges as really the final judge and the most ideal of the judges. Remember that the Book of Judges, which was the backdrop for Sefer Shmuel, is full of leaders who don't quite live up to the standard of what a judge in ancient Israel ought to be, but Shmuel reaches that standard. And mainly it is a function of his devotion to the people of Israel and his willingness to go out to instruct, to teach, to guide, and to inspire, and to do all of that selflessly. So as a judge, Shmuel is ideal. But one thing that we learn as the era of the judges comes to an end is that the judges, by their very nature, can only exercise limited leadership. They cannot craft a national policy. They cannot bring the people of Israel together. They tend to be tribal or regional leaders at best. And when there are threats that are national threats and overwhelming threats, it is not possible for a judge to overcome them. And so the people of Israel are ready for a new political arrangement. And they approach Shemuel asking for a king. Shemuel is reluctant. And God is disappointed, and the reason for that becomes very clear. Although a king can rally the people together, although a king can create a unified nation, although a king, through taxation, can do monumental things, although a king can protect from attack by raising a standing army, that very power is also the source of the great caution in the Tanakh, in the Hebrew Bible, concerning the office of monarchy. To concentrate so much power in the hands of one individual is a dangerous proposition, and therefore Shemuel and God are both reluctant, but the people are insistent, and this of course is a theme. Ultimately, it is human choices which will win the day. Shaul of Binyamin, a modest and good-hearted fellow, is selected by destiny to be the first king of Israel. He does not ask for the position. He does not ask for the office. It is placed upon him by divine fiat. And Shaul has the potential to succeed. Here we are introduced to a fundamental lesson in the human condition, which is that sometimes we are given missions that we did not ask for, and it becomes our responsibility to fulfill those missions to the best of our abilities. And Shaul begins his career in a very promising fashion, defeating Nahash, the Ammonite tyrant, rallying the people around himself and Shemuel, and willing, seemingly, to accept Shemuel's guidance. 
but that will quickly change. And whereas Shaul did not embrace kingship to begin with, very soon his self-interest will begin to emerge as well as his tragic flaw, his unwillingness to take responsibility for his failures. And this, of course, is most spectacularly illustrated by the war, the battle against Amalek, where Shemuel offers Shaul no less than five opportunities to take responsibility, and it is not until the very end of that painful process that Shaul will do so, although with reservations. As a result of that, Shaul's brief kingship comes to an end, and God now appoints Shemuel to find a new king. And this brings us, of course, to the middle of the first book of Samuel. David is chosen. David will enter Shaul's orbit, first as a musician and then as an armor bearer. And the initial perspective of David in the story is one, like Shaul, who is chosen for the task. But David, in agreeing, in embracing the challenge of fighting Goliath, Goliath, will now actually emerge from the state of chosenness to the state of choosingness. David will choose himself for future kingship by being willing to meet a challenge that no one else, including Shaul, the king of Israel, is prepared to do. And this, of course, highlights an incredibly important aspect of David, that David takes initiative, David has a self-confidence, and most importantly, David has an abiding trust in God that guides his life. And throughout all of his life, that abiding trust will be the bedrock that sustains him. As David emerges in Shaul's court as someone with great ability and great potential, Shaul becomes more and more suspicious, and eventually David is driven out to become a fugitive from Shaul for a lengthy period of time. And at the time, we noted that this is a formative series of events in David's life when he will learn a precious lesson. What does it feel like to be oppressed and to be marginalized? What does it feel like to be an outcast? What does it feel like to be on the run? So that when David one day becomes king, he will be able to identify with those of his subjects that are in precisely that position, the weak and the vulnerable and those that are marginalized in Israelite society. David, in spite of the fact that he has a divine assurance that he will one day become king, never once takes advantage of Shaul's weakness in order to usurp the throne. David waits patiently for the divine plan to play itself out, and once again, this will become part and parcel of who David is. 
If God has assured him, he will wait for that assurance to be fulfilled. He will not send forth his hand, as he puts it, against the anointed of the Lord. Eventually, Shaul will die tragically in battle against the Philistines at the very end of Shemuel Aleph, and David will now ascend to the throne. All the while, avoiding the pitfalls of civil war, and doing his very best to unify the people of Israel. And that will in fact become his greatest contribution. When David becomes king, he makes it his goal and his objective to finally begin the process of overcoming tribalism, which is characterized by a self-centered, sectarian perspective, every tribe for themselves, and attempt to create some sort of a national Israelite identity, and this he will do by making Jerusalem his eternal capital. And from that day forwards, Yerushalayim will enter our collective consciousness as the people of Israel, as the center of our national identity. David will move the Ark of the Lord to Jerusalem, transforming it into the spiritual center of ancient Israel as well. And of course, this calls to mind something fundamental about David and his approach, which is that for David, God and engaging with God is at the very, very center of his being. Essentially, David will secure the realm through a series of wars against the kingdoms surrounding his own, and the text will conclude in a glorious statement of David's kingship that David vayihi David oseh mishpat utzedakah lechol amo, a more beautiful epithet, could not be composed to describe what it is to be an ideal leader. David did justice and righteousness for all of his people. And so these first 10 chapters of the second book of Samuel describe David ascendant, David resplendent, David in his glory. But of course, David is a human being and no human being is faultless and without sin. The crime committed with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, will prove to be the turning point in David's reign. And we will learn very, very forcefully that little crimes turn into big crimes and that big crimes are absolutely devastating. Natan the prophet will turn to David and say, you are the man, Atahaish, the subject of the parable. And David will respond in a way that Shaul never did or could have. David will say, Chatati Lashem, I have sinned to God. And he will take responsibility for his actions. Effectively, David will therefore emerge not only as a sinner, but as a Baal Tshuva in the most profound and authentic way imaginable. But that, of course, will not 
will not mean that David will escape punishment. And the greatest punishment for the crime that he commits is that David loses the moral high ground that the king must occupy. David's crime indicates beyond a shadow of a doubt that no person may regard themselves above the law, and this will now come back to haunt him. Amnon, the crown prince, will rape his half-sister Tamar, Avshalom will kill Amnon, and ultimately unleash a rebellion against David, really David will be absolutely instrumental in the process, all the while realizing the divine plan of punishment, but unable to stop it from being fulfilled. The consequences are very, very harsh. David is forced into exile and almost killed. Were it not for the intervention of his loyal fighters and God himself, David surely would not have survived the rebellion. Even as Shlomo emerges just very, very briefly as God's beloved, the rest of David's household is in utter disarray as a result of this rebellion. But in the end, David will be restored once the punishment has been meted out and the tshuva has been completed through the suffering that David receives, he will be restored to his throne towards the end of the second book of Samuel. One might even argue that when he is restored, he is even stronger than he was beforehand. And of course, we noted at the time, the final chapters of Shmuel Bet offer us a retrospect of who David is. David is a man who keeps his word and keeps his pledge. David is a man who is imbued with an intense spiritual energy. He recognizes his dependence upon God and expresses his gratitude to God for his successes. And David also utter, offers us an ideal vision of what it is to be a ruler in Israel. A ruler in Israel is tzaddik. A ruler in Israel is yirat elokim, righteous and full of reverence for God. That is the recipe for being a ruler in Israel. The final events of the book, of course, the census, which David insists on carrying out, to his own detriment, because it unleashes a plague. And so Shemuel Bet ends with a fundamental lesson about leadership, which is that leaders make decisions, and sometimes those decisions are poor decisions, and there are going to be innocent victims, that is to say, their subjects. Or put differently, not only must we choose leaders carefully, but leaders have to exercise their authority with great care. And with that, Sefer Shemuel Bet will end anticipating the building of a temple at the very site where that plague was stayed. And of course, that will naturally lead us 
into Sefer Melachim, the Book of Kings, and the building of the temple as David's rule is concluded and Shlomo comes to the throne. Like most books of the Hebrew Bible, and certainly like Jewish tradition, Sefer Shemuel therefore ends optimistically, even as we had setback and failure and so much material in the second book was really devoted to David, not in his glory, but in his infamy. Nevertheless, the book will end optimistically, anticipating the building of the temple, the very symbol of the tshuva, of the authentic transformative repentance that David did during his lifetime. David is, of course, the most celebrated personality in the Hebrew Bible. His name is mentioned more than any other character, and Sefer Shemuel gives us an insight into what makes this individual unique. Tremendous potential, tremendous ability, tremendous charisma, and also willing to take responsibility and to do his best in order to overcome failure. So David is recalled fondly by our tradition in spite of the fact that his failure, his moral failure, was certainly great. At this time, I would very much like to thank the sponsors of this podcast series, Simon Brief and the extended Newstein family, who sponsored this podcast very generously in beloved memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Neustein, who devoted his life to healing others as well as to study and to learning Torah. Thank you all for joining, and God willing, we will have other opportunities in the future to learn together. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you like what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.